Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. All right, check out this Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever job description. Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever are proud to announce our first ever fire and public lands program manager position. This newly created role will provide strategic direction and focus to our organization's habitat specialists, habitat share initiative, adopt a game area program, and our prescribed fire programs. This position will collaborate with the conservation delivery team and Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever chapters to implement public lands habitat programs. And the winning uh, candidate of this newly minted role is a woman with a drip torch tattooed on her arm. If you look up the definition of badass in Webster's Dictionary, you're very likely to find a photo of Maya Larson right next to that word badass. That's right. Our very own Maya Larson has been promoted just last month to the organization's first ever fire and public lands program manager position. In this episode, I'll be joined by Maya Larson and serving as today's co-host. Uh, back to On the Wing podcast is Marissa Jensen, our Education and Outreach Program Manager and Women on the Wing Leader. And for this particular episode, we're thrilled to welcome Irish Setter Boots as the official sponsor of this episode. It was really important to Irish Setter to be part of a podcast episode that highlighted one of our organization's women who are out there doing the great work of our habitat mission. And who better than the badass Maya Larson to be uh, featured in this episode. Um, Irish Setter since 1950 has crafted boots designed to keep you going all day long. Whether it's work, hunt, play, Prescribed burns demand the goal all day comfort, boundless energy, and endurance found in Irish Setter hunting boots. Visit irishsetter.com to shop now. And thanks to Irish Setter for supporting our wildlife habitat mission and our effort to be more inclusive and welcoming in a welcoming organization and to the, up, the entire upland conservation community. So with that long-winded um, intro to this episode, uh, but hopefully you can sense the excitement, um, I'll introduce Maya Larson. But first, Marissa, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Bob. It was uh, really hard for me to stay quiet during that introduction. I was all uh, <laughs> fired up, so uh, super excited to to tease out some of Maya's story here um, for our audience. And I just want to say thanks again to Irish Setter. This is a really cool opportunity to highlight one of our own here. Um, so Marissa Jensen, Education and Outreach Program Manager. I'm based uh, here in Nebraska, but I, um, I work across the country with our Women on the Wing initiative and some of our additional education and outreach programs. Um, so looking forward to highlighting some of the incredible women within our organization like Maya. Awesome. Well, Maya, we've been talking about you for four minutes already. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for having me. All right. So, so let's, I, I'm going to ask you tattoo oriented questions, which um, are, I'm, I'm fascinated by the drip torch, but Let's start with your background. Where where did you grow up? A um, little bit about who you are. Yeah, so I was uh, born and raised in in central Arkansas. Um, I I was brought up in a real uh, outdoors and and nature oriented lifestyle. My mom's a ecologist, um, so I was really I I was kind of brought into that world at a at an early age. Um, I went to the University of Central Arkansas. 
uh, which is actually where my mom taught as well and got a degree in environmental science. After college, I kind of kind of bounced around in the seasonal fire world for a while before I ended up landing with Quail Forever as their habitat specialist coordinator in Arkansas, where I was leading leading a burn crew that was primarily they they did primarily prescribe burns, but you know a lot of other habitat management practices as well. Hmm. So I've always how how long have you worked at Quail Forever? I started with with that position in right at the beginning of the pandemic in like 2020, early 2020. Okay. And you've won some awards as, uh, you know, for your, your work with Prescribed Fire, right? Yep. Uh, um, and every time I've seen a photo of you, there's fire. Like, uh, has, there's like this Ozzy Osbourne thing in my mind connected to my Lars. Where's the fire? Like, is the fire always been a part because of your mom's connection as an ecologist? Yeah, yeah. So we started, I think my first fire experience was was with my mom on their uh, nature reserve that they had on campus. And she was hmm. she was tasked as like a, the manager of that nature reserve. And, and I spent a lot of time as a, a young teen like pulling Chinese privet up by hand and eventually she got into, you know, decided she was going to burn it. Uh, and so it was just, you know, it was my mom and, and myself and, and some college students and, and uh, yeah, it was, it was great fun. We did a great job and, and they still burn it to this day. I've been back, I've been back several yeah. times to, to help them burn that nature reserve. They do an awesome job of it. I think it's really good, you know, for students to see that happening on that scale. Right on. So I asked you about your comfort level ahead of time about talking about tattoos, which is a little bit like some people don't want to talk about their tattoos and other people like I put this on my body to talk about it. Like, where do you fall on that spectrum? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think honestly, the drip torch tattoo particularly like I, I think I have made fire kind of a core part of my personality. I, <laughs> oh, oh, you, you think so? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really sure if I meant to do that. But... <laughs> I, Captain Obvious just arrived on the podcast. <laughs> no, it... <laughs> News alert. There is a drip torch on your hand. Yes, it's it, it has become a part of your identity. Yeah. And I, you know, it really is kind of sad too. Cause I'll, I'll like find myself at like a party or something and, and I'll be talking to folks about fire, even though I just mm -hmm. spent all day at my job talking to people about fire. I'm like, why am I, why am I doing this still? <laughs> but, but honestly the drip torch tattoo, I mean, this sounds kind of like a lame answer to that, but I really just, I thought it looked cool. So, <laughs> so are you, are you, I mean, Genuinely, genuinely comfortable talking about your tattoos or just just that one because it is sort of <laughs> cool badass part of who you are it is on my hand too so i'm not really <laughs> sure if i can avoid that <laughs> <laughs> although i doubt i doubt i'll ever be applying to a job where where they wouldn't also think that was a cool tattoo so I think... <laughs> have you ever uh, met anybody else that has one i have um not as uh dramatic as the one I have. But... <laughs> Very cool. Who, but yeah. who, who else had one? Uh, I've met a couple folks um, along the way in my in my career that have that have gotten them. Um, mm. A couple wildland firefighters and a good sure. buddy of mine who works for the Nature Conservancy. I've seen him. I've definitely seen him around. <laughs> okay. And did you design the artwork and? I, you did. Yeah, I did actually. I I I drew it. Uh, I kind of drew it up so they, you know, a tattoo artist doesn't really know what a drip torch is. So I kind of drew it up for him, and then he, you know, he obviously made it look pretty. <laughs> huh. It wasn't in so, one of so those did... like portfolios that you select, and there's right. a drip torch. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if you're gonna find a drip torch on the on the portfolio wall. <laughs> huh. Do you have other fire related or conservation related tattoos uh not 
I don't think any other fire-related ones. Um, I do have a chainsaw chain also on the same arm. Um, and I have thought about getting like a, you know, a cedar engulfed in flames. I feel like that oh, would be. Oh, <laughs> yes. I, I haven't quite, I haven't put that image like onto paper yet or anything. Mm. So. That's cool. I like it. <laughs> So, um, all right. So, so you, you grew up with a mom that was an ecologist and it, did you always know you wanted to go to school and sort of work in this field? Um, I think that I always knew I wanted to be in some kind of environmentally or, you know, oriented job. It was actually it was actually my mom who pushed me kind of in this direction because I, I started out as a straight biology major um, and then realized I was really bad at chemistry. <laughs> and my mom was like, look, you need to, you need to kind of shift your major a little bit because <laughs> the chemistry isn't working for you. So I switched to that environmental science. And I think that's what really, I, I really kind of felt, you know, more at place there. So and, and as you know, you know, with the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever audience, huge component of it are, are bird hunters. Um, did you grow up as a as a hunter? Do you, do you bird hunt yourself these days? I'm actually not much of a hunter. I, I My mom didn't hunt and my dad did hunt, but he was really bad at it. So I didn't, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really learn much from it. But I, so it wasn't until my adult years that I really, you know, started learning about hunting and and I've had some great folks from from this organization, a lot of coworkers that have kind of pushed me in that direction too. So I'm I'm learning. <laughs> do you have a dog at home? I do. Yeah, I have a uh, I have an English Shepherd. So she's not a she's not a hunting dog. She's a she's a bossy farm dog. <laughs> <laughs> Is there such thing as a fire dog? <laughs> I actually I worked a, a crew once where the the crew lead had the had a had a dog that came with us every single day so he'd, mm. he'd kind of run the fire lines and it was great his name was Waldo. <laughs> Is there you know when you're so invested mentally in identity with with prescribed fire? Is there a job like the major leagues of fire? I think about those Western fire. It's, I, I, I think they're called smoke jumpers is that right they're, they're is, that's one of them yeah <laughs> is is that like the kind of the the pinnacle when you're working in in on a burn team or fire or or is it different because you're doing it you're not fighting fire you're using fire as a tool so is there a different sort of pinnacle well the first thing i'll say and i say this with all the love is that smoke jumpers definitely think they are the pinnacle mm. <laughs> i'm not sure that they are but they definitely think they are um i don't i don't know i think i think prescribed fire and wildland fire is mostly just a bunch of people who struggle with moving their jobs into an office mm. um, and i think that so they really i don't think there is much of a a pinnacle per se because all of us all all our, we're trying to do is just stay out of an office so the longer right. we can the longer we can stay in those jobs the the happier we are all right so we'll dive into the meat of your new job and what prescribed fire means in habitat conservation before i go there uh, a shout out to onyx uh, official sponsor of On the Wing podcast and a national sponsor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. If you want to find more birds this hunting season, look no further than the Onyx Hunt app. Private and public land boundaries are just the beginning of Onyx's countless tools to make you a safer and more successful hunter. Download the app for a risk-free seven-day trial, then Use the code pheasants or quail during the checkout process for 20% off your membership at onyxhunt.com. And you'll be glad to learn that a portion of every purchase you make using those codes um, comes back in, in a donation to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's wildlife habitat mission, leading to better habitat, more wild birds, and creating 
more public lands. So th thanks to our partners at Onyx. All right, meat of the new job, fire and public lands uh, is the focus. Let's start foundationally. You know, we can sort of assume in this world that, or in, in the conservation community, that everybody knows what prescribed fire is as a tool for wildlife management. But let's maybe just start at the 100 level. Like, why is fire important for wildlife habitat, Maya? Yeah, so fire has shaped our landscape for thousands of years. Um, and recently, the, the Smokey the Bear era has kind of led us into exclusion and suppression of fire from those landscapes, which has really led to some pretty serious consequences. Um, our woodlands and our forests are, are really overstocked with, with shade-loving mid-story species. Um, and now about a, <clears throat> about a century's worth of fuel loading on top of that, too, so, which has been a huge contributor to the extreme wildfires we've seen. Um, and then grasslands and prairies are, are suffering from woody invasion. Uh, in my neck of the woods, that's mostly cedar and, and sweet gum, which are both native species that have encroached into those prairies where they historically would have been controlled by disturbances like fire. Uh, and I just think as a culture, I think it's important for us to see the significance of fire and also see how our natural areas are suffering from that from that lack of fire. Hmm. So it's sort of intuitive or you can connect the dots easily on, you know, fire knocks back woody encroachment, right? Like fire burns up a tree. So it maintains the integrity of a prairie landscape that I can connect the dots there. What might be a little bit harder to understand is what fire does to sort of reinvigorate um, diversity and like removed off. Talk a, a little bit biologically, like what fire does it beyond the woody encroachment component. Yeah, so I mean, it, it, it varies by region a lot and it also varies, you know, by what what exact management goals you're shooting for with that particular burn. Hmm. But we, we prescribe fire for, for all kinds of reasons, you know, invigorating herbaceous forbs, setting back grasses, you know, and then on the other hand, sometimes we burn to encourage grasses. Mm -hmm. um, so you can do both with fire, depending on what time of year and what type of, of burn you're doing. So it really, it's, it's a very diverse, tool that we can use to meet a lot of different objectives you, you mentioned time of year I, I think the general public thinks oh you burn in the springtime period end of story over that's not true is it no i i mean in arkansas you know not to not to bias it towards my own state but in arkansas we can burn every month of the year and i think we should be uh, we haven't been historically, like you said, we've been burning mostly in the spring. But you know, I think lengthening that that burn window not only allows us to hit different objectives, but also allows us to put more fire on the land because we have the whole year to do it. So I think it's just you know, as a as a fire community, we have to you know understand what how we're using it and not just say okay we need to burn this and we're going to burn it in March because that's when we've always burned it. So uh, put, putting that fire with an actual prescription for what you're trying to do, I think is, is really important. So let's go through that just real quickly, quick twitch. Like if you're going to do a prescribed burn in the spring, what are you going to accomplish? Again, that, that varies by <laughs> what, you know, what part of the country you're in. Mm. Um, but a lot of, you know, a lot of spring burns are what we think of as like, the, you know, the March, the standard dormant season burn. Uh, and a lot of those, uh, I, woody encroachment's a good example, is that you, in the spring you can burn that and all those, you know, all your hardwoods are, are, are dormant at that time. Mm. Um, so you top kill them, but they would like, you know, they will just sprout right back from that. If you burn them in a, the growing season where they're actively you know, using resources then, and you burn them at that time, then then you can actually kill them more than just top killing them. Okay. 
Yeah, I was just going to kind of ask what the, uh, you know, I've, I've only been on a couple burns in my life. And, uh, you know, one of them was a growing season burn. And so, you know, trying to think about, you know, warm season grasses and cool season grasses, you know, why you might pick a growing season burn. And I think you kind of got into it there a little bit, but are you looking at individual species then too of um, not just woody encroachment, but maybe some invasive grass species? I know we've, there's several different across the country that, that we try and target. Um, how do you kind of decide that? Yeah, there's a lot of individual species that have a very specific target for a time of year where you can actually use fire to maintain them. I, I mean, a couple examples, the cool season grass fescue, um, you know, if you target that in, in April, right when it first, you know, decides that it's going to start putting up a lot of resources, you can get a good impact there. Um, Cerisa lespediza is another good one that is, is a horrible invasive down in the Southeast. Um, and that, you know, there's a very, a very short window generally around September that, hmm. that you can actually, you can run a fire through that and then they will re-sprout, but they don't have enough time to re-sprout before a frost kills them. So there's like a sweet spot where you can run a fire through there and, and actually hurt that species so it's just hmm. uh, the more we learn the more we're going to figure those specifics out and i think i think every year we 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 learn something new on that front so where i was heading with that questions you know i was going to ask you like spring what are you trying to accomplish summer what are you trying to accomplish fall and what i'm learning is it's more it, it, i can't paint with that broad a brush that it's it's a little bit more you got to identify the particular type of species that you're trying to manage because it's not like the entirety of uh, necessarily the entirety of an ecosystem. You're like Eastern red cedars are taking over this landscape and we got to knock that back or fescue mm -hmm. or brome. And then we got to design a fern to address a particular species. Is that the right way of looking about it? Yeah, I mean, you have to apply those objectives to, I mean, if you're burning and you don't have any specific objectives like that, then then you're just burning for the sake of burning. Hmm. So I think those specific objectives are what drives, you know, the choices that you make on when and how you do that burn. When you run a fire and then like, say three weeks afterwards, if, when, when I've seen like the, after of a fire like things are emerald green right like things and instantly look alive from your perspective as you know a, a fire specialist and a conservation you know biology background you look and is there a species that you're like that makes your heart warm after a fire when you're like that one that one was a success well i did just uh i did Last week, took my daughter on a hike through uh, a WMA near where I live, and they'd, they'd burned it uh, probably about two or three weeks ago, um, maybe maybe up to a month ago. And we were just walking around there, and we found some milkweed that was blooming. And, and so the fire had run through it. It has already bloomed earlier this year. Fires run through it, and now it's getting a second bloom hmm. ju wow. just because that fire reset it kind of. And, I thought that was really, I thought that was pretty cool. What does fire do that some other habitat management um, initiatives like grazing? You know, we, we talk about fire back in the, you know, in the days of the buffalo, you know, would, would maintain the prairie along with the buffalo. But what does fire do that grazing can't or interceding can't? What, what does fire bring as an advantage to other alternatives? I think that it's important to remember that that fire's not the only tool in the toolbox. It's imp especially important for me to remember because mm. I love it so much. <laughs> um, and, and honestly, it is, it's the most effective when it's paired with those other habitat management practices. Mm. Um, I guess one of the main benefits of fire to in my opinion, is that it is very time, labor, and cost effective. I think that's really one of the main reasons that, that we need to be doing a lot more of it. Because uh, we could 
you know, we could do a burn and get it done in one day when, you know, some other practice would take months or years to see the same result from like, like disking or brush clearing, like you can get to that same result, but it's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot more equipment um, rather than just, you know, five people out there with drip torches and six hours, you know, and we're yeah, done. Right. So, That's a tremendous point, the, right? The, the time is short, the a drip torch compared to, you know, any cost yeah. of machinery or brush hog, like it's, it's, it's instant. The, the balance there is the risk, right? Like if you lose control of a fire, it's dramatically risky. So when you're evaluating a situation, like are there elements like humidity, temperature, obviously wind, what's, what's the perfect scenario that you're looking for? The perfect burn day? Yeah. Oh, all days are a perfect burn. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I think that we do kind of box ourselves into, as fire practitioners, we, we have that perfect day in our head. Hmm. Um, you know, 30% RH, 10 mile an hour winds, like, you know, and that perfect day varies whether you're in Arkansas or you're in Minnesota. Um, but we have that, that day in our heads. And I think that that all that does is limit us because we're so focused on, on finding that perfect burn day that we're hmm. missing all these other burn days that are, you know, maybe not perfect, but they're fine. I've burned, I've burned pine stands in like 90% humidity and met the objectives that I was trying to meet for that burn. So I think, I think, I think it's a good thing to keep in mind that while there is, I mean, yes, there is a perfect burn day. I think that thinking that way definitely kind of boxes us in a little mm. bit. What so. variables cause you trepidation when you see things you're like, Ooh, that's going to cause me to cancel a burn day. What I really don't like, I, you can get away with a couple outliers, but what, what always raises a red flag for me is like a combination of parameters that are not ideal. So like if we have a really low humidity and high winds at the same time, like not, you know, you may still be able to do it, but that's definitely a red flag. Mm -hmm. Could we talk about the position of burn boss because the first time that I heard that I decided that when I grow up I want to be a burn boss I didn't know such a thing existed and just you know what what is a burn boss and how does that apply to to a, a said burn well the burn boss is who is leading the entire burn so they they're you know they've got the burn plan they've you know decided what ignition patterns they're going to have. They're, they're, they're the ones bossing everybody else around. Basically. The boss. <laughs> <laughs> and you need that. Too. You need, you need somebody to, to call the shots. Cause I've, I've been on, you know, I've been on crews that we're all so comfortable with each other that sometimes, you know, you can, you can kind of lose that a little bit, but it's still, you, you need that person who ultimately is going to call the shots for, for what's going to happen. Sure. Well, so, and kind of taking us a totally different direction here, but when you, you know, you have that person that's kind of that leader and it, it makes me think a little bit about your story with, you know, growing up with a mom um, who was kind of that mentor in the prescribed fire space and as, you know, a natural resource professional. Um, what was that like having a mom that, you know, kind of right next to you in that Webster's Dictionary is total badass. I mean, really. And... You know, then kind of just expanding on that, what would you say for other women out there that kind of want to get in the space and maybe they do or don't have that role model, um, you know, but might might look to, to you and others in this space to kind of help get them started? Yeah, so, well, I'll start with growing up, growing up with, with my badass of a mom. <laughs> um, I was basically, well, for one, I was basically raised in a, in an ecology class uh, for my entire life. I think, uh, I think my mom was teaching a botany class uh, when I was born. Oh and my then gosh. Car carried me around in one of those little baby slings for the entire rest of the semester. <laughs> um, so, 
and it was i mean it was really cool being brought up in that world especially spending time with you know a lot of her professor friends and her graduate students you know those it's such a cool group of people and, and just seeing how they looked up to her as a mentor like all of them did like she was she was a mentor you know for the women students she was a mentor for the men students like she you know she was just that you know kind of just that kind of person that that people could look up to yeah and i think that it really did i think seeing her do that and then seeing her also go through all the struggles of of being a a woman in the in the field of science in the 80s and 90s i think it did empower me to to get into a to a world where i'm kind of in the same boat i think uh i think women only make up like 10 percent of the wildland fire workforce wow um so there's not there's not a whole lot of us yeah <laughs> but, but and then I, I guess my advice i don't really know i think my best advice is to really latch on when you find those mentors you know really latch on to them male or female mm-hmm. i've had i've had a lot of amazing mentors in my career and, and i think latching on to those people when you find them is really important and because those are the people who are going to you know drive your career forward and and help you in any way that they can i mean i still i call mentors back from my early fire days i still call those guys and ask them what i should be doing (laughs) so yeah that's amazing community that you build around that and i mean i think that's the biggest thing is just surrounding yourself with a community of people that lift each other up like that that's awesome the fire community is something else like there's such a they're such an amazing group of people. Like I, I don't know what kind of person gets into fire, but <laughs> pyro it is, professionals. Pyro professionals. Yeah, it, it, it really is an amazing community. I'm, I'm so glad that I ended up stuck with all these weird pyromaniacs. <laughs> you, you mentioned that ten percent of kind of professional fire crews are are women. Is that changed during the time that you've been involved or has that been pretty static? Um, I'm not really sure. Um, I, the first several years that I worked in fire, I never worked with another woman. Um, I think, I think the first, the first crew I ever worked on where there was another woman on it was in 2019. So not very long ago. (laughs) So I, I've spent my entire career surrounded by men and amazing men at that. Like, I mean, it, it, it's not been a bad, bad thing. That's for sure. You talked about community and one of the things about prescribed fire is it's misunderstood by communities where it's happening by the general public. If you could get across a concept about the importance of fire and communicate that to general public that looks at plumes of smoke and, you know, great big flames with skepticism. What would you want to communicate to that audience? Well, I think you kind of hit on it. I think fire seems like this like crazy extreme force of nature, Mm -hmm. but in reality, it's, it's really quite predictable. Uh, it's gonna do. It's gonna do exactly what the fuels and the weather conditions drive it to do. Like it's not just gonna out of the blue go do something random. Like the the weather and the fuel conditions are what's driving it. So if you understand those two things, hmm. then you can really easily manipulate what it's gonna do. And that's the whole. I mean, that's what we're doing with controlled control burning is is manipulating understanding those conditions and then manipulating it to reach the objectives that we're trying to reach mm-hmm. um and the other you know that the other main thing to to the public that i think is is a really important one is that prescribed fire is hands down the most effective way that we have to prevent catastrophic wildfires um and it is it's very rare that I do a burn where hazard reduction is not an objective. Hmm. Like hazard reduction is always an objective mm-hmm. for, for any burn that you're doing. Because if, if you think about it, if you burn it, 
then it's not going to burn in a wildfire. Sure. Immediately it, afterwards, at least. So I think I think that's a really key one for 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 the public is just understanding that. And it's become more well understood about hazard reduction out west, right? Like there's these fi- wildfires in California and Washington, Oregon, but there's that component exists across the country, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, down here in the South, I mean, it's not that we don't have, we have, I, I'm pretty sure the South accounts for about 50% of the wildfires that we have in the U.S. Oh, wow. But the thing is, they, they just don't get very big. Hmm. Um, but of course, we don't have, I mean, California is a great example of some absolutely crazy weather conditions. Yeah. Um, right. But, you know, I mean, that's always, that's always an objective. There's wildfires everywhere, like, and, and doing what we can to, to limit that fuel to be consumed by wildfire is, is only a benefit. So if, if you've got somebody within the local community that's interested in getting involved, whether it's um, just more education or, you know, wanting to actually be involved with putting fire on the ground, you know, what are some ways that they might be able to help or get connected to the, the fire community in their area? Well, the main one that, that immediately comes to mind is, is prescribed burn associations, um, yeah. which are groups of landowners mostly that, you know, have agency advisors. Um, and those, those associations provide training, equipment, and assistance for private loan landowners to burn their own properties. Um, and a lot of states, there's many states now that have them. And, you know, we're only supportive of creating more of them as well. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that would be the, the number one way that if you're looking to burn your own property, like, of course, you know, you can call your uh, private lands biologist and, and, you know, go that route and get it burned, you know, by a, Quell Forever Habitat Specialist team, but, but, you know, you could also, I mean, if you want to get involved in prescribed fire and you want to do it yourself, like that is an avenue that is a very productive model and has had a lot of success in a lot of different states. Hmm. Any final thoughts related to prescribed burns and and fire as a management tool before I shift the conversation over to uh, the public lands component of, of your new position? Uh, not really. I guess my main, you know, I, I, I think the more fire we can get on the landscape, the better. So in any of these avenues for, for putting down more fire, I think the, the better off we're going to be. Okay. All right. So let's, let's shift the conversation to public lands, the public lands component of Maya's new role. Before I go there, uh, one more shout out to Irish Setter Boots. When you lace up a pair of Irish Setter Boots, you can trust you're going to get the most out of your experience in the field. Rain or shine, in sweltering heat or extreme cold, Irish Setter Boots work as long as you want them to. Hunt as long as you want, go all day, visit irishsetter.com to shop now and, uh, Folks that have seen me MC the Bird Dog Parade know that I'm a big fan of the Irish Wing Shooter boots. Uh, super comfortable and uh, very, very nice bird hunting boots as well. Um, public lands component of your role. Uh, and again, Maya's new position is fire and public lands program manager. Give us an overview of the public lands component of of your new position, Maya. Yeah, so Pheasants Forever and Quell Forever, we've got a lot of different initiatives around the country already that are specifically targeting upland habitat improvements on on public land. Um, And I think the main thing with my position is gonna be looking at the accomplishments of those states that are already doing it and facilitating that nationally. Mm. Um, And I think you know, I think generally, like, it's going to take both public and, and private lands working together, supporting each other, and supporting the species that depend on those landscapes. You know, I think 
public lands belong to all of us. So mm -hmm. it's up to all of us to, you know, make sure they're getting the attention they deserve. Uh, what about um, uh, public lands in Arkansas, your home state? Um, I've not spent any time hunting public lands in Arkansas. What a what are some of the things that you hold up as things that are tremendous in Arkansas that you'd like to maybe bring to other parts of the country? Yeah, I think Arkansas does a really good job of managing it, its public lands. Like, I, I actually live on, I don't live on, but I live immediately adjacent to <laughs> a, a, a dump. You're not squatting, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah, just... <laughs> But I've got two boundaries that are WMA, and honestly, really? it's one of the most beautiful WMAs that I've ever spent any time on. Just mm. absolutely gorgeous post-oak savannas that have been, it used to be part of a military installation, so, so it's been being burned for way longer than any of our other areas in the state because they, you know, they used to drop mortars on it, so it burned wow. periodically. Mm. Uh, so it's been it's been seeing fire for a long time and and you can definitely tell because it's absolutely gorgeous mm. so i i think arkansas does a really good job um but i think you know arkansas is like 97 98 privately owned so we've we've got some you know we've got great public lands but there's just not very many of them and i think that's you know that's i think we see that in a lot of parts of the country yeah mm -hmm. As you get your feet underneath you and talk to states around the country with some of these other public lands, any states' public lands programs keep coming up repeatedly as you're kind of doing some fact-finding? Yeah, I'm not sure if I want to call out particular states because if I miss some, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make anybody mad. <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I think the West in general does a, a pretty good job with their public lands management. And I think you know, we, we specifically are, are working pretty hard in that realm. Um, I know Nebraska has a really great public lands program, mm -hmm. Habitat Share. It's been, you know, I think that it's been tossed around a lot as a, as a model. Um, Nebraska apparently does everything right. I wasn't going to toot the horn. I was just sitting here smiling <laughs> smugly, so... <laughs> well, it, I it is... <laughs> It is a it is one we've talked about on this podcast before, particularly their walk in access component, yeah. um, open fields and waters, which used to be CRP map manage access. So it's one of the beautiful components of that. It opens it up for access, but it's also um, improving that private land through habitat improvement mm -hmm. to open it up as walk in. So it's not just the access, it's the habitat component, but there's also, you know, when you talk public lands, it's a mosaic of a whole variety of things. And that's um, complicated because there are so many entities that manage, whether it's, okay, from the federal perspective, you got BLM, U.S. Forest Service. Yes, and U.S. Forest Service manages grasslands, right? Mm -hmm. I, I believe national grasslands are managed by the U.S. Forest Service, right? Which is incongruent, in my mind, anyways. <laughs> but uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and, and all the amazing properties that happen as a result of duck stamp dollars, waterfall production areas, national wildlife refuges. Um, and, you know, I've just touched on the federal ones. And then there's the state-owned WMAs. Then there's the SNAs. And there's, like, properties that are you know, an amalgamation of a whole bunch of different things. And that's probably one of the more challenging components of your job, Maya, is, you know, working on public lands habitat improvements is really a role in collaborating with a whole bunch of partners, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and lucky for me, I, I love working with partners. So I think that, <laughs> I think it's really fun. I, I think actually some of my favorite burns have been, co-op burns with with multiple different the more the more different agencies are there the more fun it gets honestly so when i think about all these different public lands whether it's waterfall production areas or, you know federal lands or state lands you know and i'm walking behind my bird dog it doesn't really matter what sign was at the gate when i walked in 
I can sort of feel the vitality of a piece of property, maybe even before I can see what's over the horizon. Like you, you hear the insects buzzing, you sort of get a sense of the complexity of it. Uh, do you walk into a public property and like have all of your sensors and spidey tingling, you know, like is, is everything on high alert? What, what are you looking at when you are feeling when you go into a piece of public property? To evaluate it yeah i think i think i assess them you know similarly to the way you you just described uh, i think again i think growing up with a ecologist slash botanist for a for a mom really did you know help me in that too because on top of what you're saying of like seeing and hearing you know you can easily tell how much wildlife something's supporting by whether you can hear and see that wildlife hmm. uh but the plant community i think is the the same you know the same way and i i think seeing that plant diversity is kind of a a learned trait mm. so i think a lot of times you know you just kind of see a sea of green mm -hmm. and just assume that it's supposed to be there but but you know seeing seeing i so i think i walk into those properties and see all those different plant species and the diversity and also sadly all the invasives too mm -hmm. Once you once you get into this world and and you start dealing with invasive species every day, it really it's kind of a curse more than anything because now I cannot I can't go anywhere without seeing them. Hmm. So I can't even drive down the highway without without seeing invasive species everywhere. So it's kind of a curse in a way. So how do you how do you talk to people about trees being invasive species i mean that's something to me that it like took me a really long time to wrap my head around uh you know i grew up as save the rainforest and save trees and then realizing that trees are not always good and that sometimes our we our best interests aren't the best thing for that property and uh, have you had to have any conversations with people about when trees are not good um yes <laughs> yeah i've had a lot of those conversations i think as a you know it, and you described it well i think as a society we struggle with removing trees because everybody loves trees and they you know they're beautiful and they they seem so like old and like they're supposed to be there you know and I, so i think we struggle with removing them but we really i mean we really do need to be removing them and i think it's really easy to see in like a savanna, for example, a lot of our savannas are are turning into forests because uh, they're getting choked out mm -hmm. by a lot of you know a lot of trees that are not supposed to be there. And you can walk through that forest and see like a old, ancient oak that is just absolutely surrounded by all these these young trees that are not are not supposed to be in, up oh. in its space, you know. So and they're getting choked out and and. You know they can't even get the resources they need anymore because they're completely surrounded where they're supposed to be surrounded by you know grass and wildflowers and mm -hmm. stuff so i think that's a really a really easy place to see that that big beautiful oak tree and be like wow we're sacrificing that tree for all these little trees that aren't even supposed to be here you yeah know? It, it, this might be a obvious answer but from somebody that said that they're thinking about getting a a cedar tree on fire as the next tattoo but is there a particular type of invasive that absolutely drives you bonkers is it cedar or fescue or brome or buckthorn or or is it like just it's all of it just choking out what should be there yeah it's it's kind of all of them i if mm. i had to if i had to pick one of my most hated invasives mm. It would probably be Cerisa lespedeza, mostly just because it's our fault that it's there. Hmm. We 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 used to plant that stuff as as habitat management habitat managers. We planted Cerisa, and now it is on every single roadside, every trail. So in is the there southeast. is there a common name for that? You know, I've heard some random common names, but I I'm not sure. I think it's called like bush clover or something huh no i'm not very good with my common names I'm like the opposite <laughs> latin all the way huh 
<laughs> I don't think that's the norm. I think it's the other way around, Maya. <laughs> Did I mention I was raised by a boss? <laughs> yeah. All right. As as we transition to closing thoughts, um, Marissa, since we've got you on this episode, and and obviously Irish Setter wanted to be a part of um, holding up kind of our efforts to be more inclusive with women and and, and give uh, Maya here a platform to talk about her new role. Um, take take a moment and tell us about what's going on with Women on the Wing, maybe some events that maybe are coming up and, and things that you're, you're happy about since the last time you joined the podcast. Yeah, so I'm uh, really excited to share that, you know, our initiative just continues to grow across the country. Um, you know, especially over the last year is, you know, people are kind of gathering more often and hosting more events. We've just seen a, a real increase where, you know, over over a, th- a thousand women, um, you know, just in the last year have gone through learn to hunt, learn to shoot yeah. um, events. And that just continues to, to increase rapidly. Um, so we have all sorts of events happening this fall and winter, everything from wing shooting clinics for um, women focused events to learn to hunt, um, weekend experiences, so multi-day events with the same group. Um, really the best thing to do would be to go to our website at pheasantsforever or quailforever.org and then backslash W-O-T-W for women on the wing. And there is a section right there on the front page that allows you to click on it and look at a calendar of events that are coming up. And then you can find something that's that's close to you. And if there's not something, you know, figure out how you can get involved with a local chapter and, and host an event or, you know, grow some community around that space with you. I also just want to mention that we've got a ton of ton of job openings and we're continuing to grow. And so if you're a, mm. a woman in the conservation space or looking to get into the conservation space and uh, want to be pretty kick-ass like Maya here, um, you know, definitely look at some of those job applications and, and join our team because um, mm. we're just continuing to grow opportunities for anyone and everyone to be a part of the space. And, and we welcome you to, to join us. So that that's really well how many how many years have you been in this role marissa this particular role a little over three years wow you have grown it so fast so tremendously kudos to you you built a really strong and and a lot of other women in the organization yeah i was gonna say (laughs) it's easy to put one one name there but we've got such um and and yeah i mean our team is just incredible and our volunteers and our members and it it truly takes that community, that family to, to create this. And it's so exciting to just be a part of that. And, and you made an, a really solid comment about um, job openings. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a tremendous amount, particularly um, if you got a biology degree, we have biology oriented positions right now open all over the country. Uh, we are growing. We're getting all sorts of new grants, whether that's through the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or the National Resource Conservation Service, U.S. Forest Service, state agencies, um, commodity partnerships. We just got a new uh, grant through the Sorghum Growers Initiative and states um, to hire positions in states like Oklahoma and Kansas and New Mexico and Colorado and Texas. Um, if you have a biology degree, there's a lot of openings in the organization right now. So uh, at the very bottom of our websites, pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org, there's the, uh, I always get uh, for Clemp, is it careers or employment? But careers. it's one or the other careers at the very bottom. Um, you can find the list of all the job openings. All right. So with, without further ado, We'll go to closing thoughts. Um, again, thank you to Irish Center for sponsoring this episode um, and, and for being a partner in our conservation efforts and helping us um, be very deliberate about engaging more women in our organization, in our mission, and in upland bird hunting. Um, Maya, your closing thought for uh, your new role in this episode of On the Wing Podcast. I guess, so my closing thoughts is mostly Thank you for having me on here. This has been fun. Um, and, you know, I guess as I think about like public lands and and fire and all that kind of stuff, I, 
you know, I have a I have a two year old and I've I've been dragging her around on all these public lands for her entire life so far. And we we walk out, you know, on our little WMA mm. all the time and, and I just I really hope that that those lands are still gonna be there for her when she grows up and they're still gonna be nice and they're still gonna, you know, be resilient and functional enough to support all the wildlife that we love to see on them. Mm-hmm. So. Really well said. Yeah, it's, you're following in your mom's footsteps with your daughter, aren't you? Yeah, there's going to be three generations of us, hopefully. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. She's already she's already been on a couple burns herself. So, <laughs> what's your daughter's name, Maya? Her name's Meadow. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> hmm. Marissa, what are your closing thoughts? Oh, you know, that's, I guess, just kind of going off of what Maya just said. And I think, Bob, you you may have mentioned it earlier because it just stuck with me when you said that, you know, public lands are for everyone. And so it's everyone's responsibility to take care of public lands. And, Mm. you know, regardless of how many generations are involved in the, you know, outdoors or conservation, um, you know, it's it doesn't necessarily start with us if you've been you know raised in it, but it's still you know each one of ours responsibility. Whether we're starting it off in our family, whether we're you know somewhere in that line, and just continuing to pass along that passion and that responsibility to take care of these places um, because it, it's going to take all of us um, caring and learning and and being actively involved in some shape or form. Um, so I hope that you know this listening to Maya just helps inspire somebody to go out and get involved in some of this in some shape or capacity. Yeah. Really fun conversation. I, I, throughout the entire time I'm thinking about, you know, we talk a lot about fire and prescribed fire and its role in habitat. And I'm thinking, you know, quail are known as a firebird, sharp tails known as a, I mean, like literally every upland game bird you can connect to, to fire. It's, they're they're you know peanut butter and jelly peas and carrots fire and upland game birds and it's a tool that has always existed on the landscape and there's like so many things there's a little bit of societal um, mythology that gets built around something that people don't understand and it has ultimately if you're going to walk away with let's say two things a Maya's a badass with a drip torch tattoo which is kind of <laughs> cool and you know when somebody is that connected to the mission those those people work throughout this organization and and that's while we don't all have you know drip torch tattoos it's sort of emblazoned on our identity you know we become incredibly passionate about this organization and our mission and our members and our volunteers should feel really proud about that so that was number one, long-winded number one. The, the number two thing is is like, if you're listening to this and have kind of a negative perspective about fire as a management tool, open your mind a little bit more because it is um, it is a natural component of the landscape. It's an incredibly valuable tool in us accomplishing our mission. You know, we, we've talked ad nauseum about cedar tree encroachment across the great great plains in particular across our grasslands it's one of the best tools we have in place it's one of the one of the limiting factors for our organization is dollars right we don't have enough dollars to buy brush hogs to get the tree to but with fire and the right people in place to be careful to know what to do we can turn habitat around really quickly so just open your mind a little bit. Know that we're hiring really talented, knowledgeable people. Um, and fire is one of the tools in the arsenal to, to make more habitat for all of the firebirds. Um, quail, sharptails, pheasants, monarch butterflies, you name it. Everything benefits from fire. So thank you very much, Maya, for, for sharing your story, talking about your tats um put yourself out there for the podcast and congratulations on your new role um really really look forward to working with you as you um uh, bring the good word of prescribed fire to our public lands that benefit all of us and 
Marissa, great having you back on the podcast, talking about women on the wing and um, and everything going on in the organization to, to be um, more welcoming and broader to a, a wider audience for us. Yeah, it's always good to be on, Bob. All right. Thanks, folks. I um, hope you enjoyed this episode of On the Wing Podcast. Reminding you to always follow the dog, especially if those public lands have been burned. Something good will be ri- rising. I guarantee it. Thanks, folks.